are going to be kind of bringing our uh, two-ish month-long series on Emotionally Healthy Church to a close today. Um, And so this is kind of an end and also a beginning. Uh, This is formally the end of that series, and then it's a beginning of a month-ish, I throw ish on there because we just, we leave it open, maybe it has to go a little longer, but a month-ish long conversation around um, ordering our lives by the rhythms of Jesus. If you're familiar with a term called rule of life, um, rule is, and, and be careful here to not say rules of or for life, but a rule of life. It comes from uh, this Latin word regula, which is this idea of a trellis. And so it's what a vine grows up so that the fruit of the vine might flourish. And so we're going to be exploring that so that we might not just talk about Jesus-y type of things, but that we might embrace those things as true in our life and then make a actual plan to attend to them in the course of our daily lives. And so that will be, um, that'll be fresh territory. I think for us as a community, um, in terms of like not just talking about it, but actually intending to do something with it. And so I'm I'm looking forward to that. Um, But you know, to talk about something as an end and a beginning is to talk about what some call a liminal space. Uh, Liminal comes from the Latin word lemon, which is this idea of a threshold. It is this in-between time. You can think of a a liminal space as a crossing over space. It's where you're leaving one thing, and yet you are not fully into another. Sometimes uh, if you think about you're in one building, maybe uh, think about like when you were in school, and you're still in the same building, yet you're leaving one classroom and getting to the next. And so that hallway is one large liminal space. And if you can think of all the things that you can encounter in a hallway, I mean, my goodness, it, it is, especially if you're like thinking of high school when you think of that, it is, um, it could be daunting to move through that liminal space. And that's kind of what today is. And I think that this is more intuitive than you might think um, because we do this. And, and we're constantly situating ourselves either in the past or the future in the present. If you're anything like me, I often wish away the present in light of the future and hope of what will be. And sometimes it's really odd, like I found myself in this season going, gosh, I want what was. Anybody right there? You're, you're looking at the present and you're thinking, I want something ahead of me that was like what I had in the past. The liminal space, and and it just reminds us that there's something we're moving toward, and then it invites us into that. And what I'm learning is that, you know, I I cannot increase in my capacity to notice and name and attend to in love the things going on in and around my life if I'm absent from the present. To say that more simply, I don't think I can actually be emotionally healthy and be longing for the future or caught up in the past. There's an invitation in the present for us. And so that's what I want to talk to us about today. Because emotional health, it it requires us, I think, to recognize the liminal space. And that this season for this little community, the Gateway Church, is that kind of a thing. A space in between where we still feel like the ground is shifting beneath our feet. And so what do we do in this type of a space, in this type of a season? And so that's why as we kind of close this series on emotional health and look forward to ordering our lives by the rhythms of Jesus, we're going to close by talking about keeping the Sabbath And I know all of you are like, yes, finally, we're getting to the good stuff. 
Or maybe you're saying, I don't even know what the, are you talking about Black Sabbath? Is that what you're, is that the one? Um, Because Sabbath, that was for you, Ben. Uh, Sabbath is where we regularly and intentionally place our souls in the loving care of God. And so you might be even thinking, yeah, why Sabbath? Emotionally healthy, where's the connection? No, Sabbath is the place where we regularly and intentionally place ourselves in the loving care of God. And over the past couple of weeks, you may have have noticed a theme uh, because collectively we've been talking about slowing down for loving union with God. If we think about emotional health, the goal of being an emotionally healthy church is that we would know that we are situated in God's love and that we would live in light of that. But sometimes that, that movement from what we know to how we put it into practice is the biggest barrier um, is, is we know a lot of things yet we don't know how to activate those things that we know. We don't even know that we have agency to do so. And so uh, to, to look out from a place of emotional health, this, this groundedness and rootedness in God's love, we've looked at a few things. We've looked at slowing down for loving union with God through things like silence and solitude so, so that we might simply just sit and allow God to love us. As the Japanese theologian Kusuke Kuyama says in his work, uh, Three Mile an Hour God, I find that God goes slowly in his educational process of man. God walks slowly because he is love. And so if we are going to be a a people who are secure in God's love, then it, it, it follows that we would live at the pace of God's love, which is slow. And that might, um, you might feel some tightening in your chest because you just are automatically thinking of your schedule for tomorrow and the Zoom meetings or whatever you have going on. Um, this is a space where we can actually release that. And so to get us there, uh, to get us from this place of into the pace of God's love, which is slow, and the hope that we might be the type of women and men who live and love from that type of place, from belonging and love of God, we're just gonna consider the Sabbath. And so to get us there, here's more or less the framework that we're following today, just kind of three movements to cultivate some curiosity about the wisdom of Sabbath. First is a case for rest. Uh, this may feel a little redundant if you've uh, been hanging around me for the past couple weeks or even the past couple years. Um, We're gonna get there anyways. A case for rest, and then the wisdom of the Sabbath from Genesis 2, and lastly, an invitation to rest from Jesus. So how's that sound? It's not rhetorical, how's that that sound? A little interact, there we go, thank you. Yes, yes. Whitney, you there for it? Here we are. All right, so uh, let me just say a word of prayer and then we'll we'll get after this. Uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, again, we welcome you. We say that you are good. We we also just recognize that there, There are places in the confines of our soul, of of our inner man or inner woman that we are scared for you to find. And so I just pray for you, Spirit, in the gentleness, the kindness that you, you give and bring to us that you would lead us to turn afresh to you. So I just pray that your grace would lead us. I pray that you, Spirit, would stand in my body, you would think with my mind, you would speak with my mouth, and that you, through the living word, would draw us to Jesus as you say you would. So Jesus, would you be exalted? Would you be magnified? Would you be the one that we see more clearly and in turn that we want to follow after? So cultivate the longings of our heart, I pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. 
So if you would, just consider these, uh, the following statistics about you and me. Um, this isn't about the Gateway Church, it's Americans in general. Uh, out of the globe's 195 countries, there are 134 countries that have laws set for a maximum length of work in the week. Any guess, is the U.S. in or out of that? It's out, yeah. Surprise. Uh, in the U.S., 85.8% of males and 66.5% of females work more than 40 hours per week. And I know some of that is by choice and other is by requirement. Um, according to the ILO, which is the International Labor Organization, quote, Americans work 137 more hours per year than Japanese workers, 260 more hours per year than British, and as one would expect, 499 more hours per year than the French. Um, Derek Thompson, who is a, a writer at The Atlantic, he suggests that workism, which he describes as, as the religion of work, helps to tell this story of our relationship to work. He says, quote, the best educated, the highest earning Americans have chosen the office for the same reason that devout Christians attend church on Sundays. So this is, this is Thompson's understanding of why you may be here. It's where they feel most themselves. I pray, just as a moment here, I pray that that would be true of this community. You hear, you hear uh, things, this, this might be a small T trigger for you, uh, like a safe space. Whatever that means in identity politics or, or educational spaces, I genuinely hope that this would be a community where anybody could come in and actually feel the felt love, like the felt presence of God's love through us such that they would be like, yeah, I think I can share my story here. And I can bear my stuff here because these people will walk with me. And even if we disagree, I think they're going to disagree well with me. Like, I hope that this is actually true, that we feel most ourselves here. So, Lord, let it be so. Thompson goes on. He says, but our desks were never meant to be our altars. Thompson goes on later in this little article to, to note that a culture that worships work is, quote, setting itself up for collective anxiety, mass disappointment, and inevitable burnout. So to help us unpack the wisdom of Sabbath, I want us just to linger a bit longer on that last word, burnout. My guess is, is that you've either heard that word or maybe you've, you've just used it off the cuff. Um, I certainly have. I feel so burned out from X, Y, or Z. I think it's a pretty, like, even people feel burned out over a restaurant or something. So it's like, it's a word that I think has a very broad spectrum of things it can hold and yet not a lot of substance now. But burnout as a technical term surfaced in the 1960s when psychologist Herbert Frudenberger uh, was volunteering in the East Village. Now this is Manhattan, not Des Moines. So he's volunteering in the East Village at a medical clinic. And then he published this paper that defined burnout as, quote, a feeling of exhaustion and fatigue, being unable to shake a lingering cold, suffering from frequent headaches and gastrointestinal disturbances, tummy trouble, sleeplessness and shortness of breath. In other words, any common ailment is a marker of burnout, <laughs> which... Uh, some 60 years later, in this meta-analysis of 182 scientific resources that cite burnout, the uh, JAMA network, uh, the Journal of American Medical Association, which I tried to read this article, and I understood maybe like four words in it, and I'm going to quote some of them too. Um, out of 182 scientific articles, there were 142 different definitions of burnout. I expected an audible gasp at that moment. Um, <laughs> 
I think what this signals is at least at bare minimum is that we're seeking a way to, to define this collective exhaustion that we feel, but we've not agreed upon a, a concise definition. Because we feel something in different aspects of our life and we, we, like, we hear the story of burnout and we say, that resonates. And that resonance with, with burnout, I, I don't, I don't know, like perhaps for some it does stem from overwork, um, but it's not that simple, is it? Because for others, exhaustion doesn't really come from the work itself, it comes from the environment of the work, or maybe it comes from this, this feeling that the work you're doing lacks substance and therefore every time you show up or you punch the clock, there is disappointment that what you're doing doesn't really matter. And then there's frustration and that, that place of frustration and discontentedness, that's the burnout that you feel. For other, for other folks among us, like it, it's literally in your body. Your serotonin levels are all out of whack, and so you feel burned out emotionally and physiologically, plus work also sucks. And so it's this, this collective of all of these things that allied, and then we, we hear the story of burnout, and we say, yeah, that, that makes sense. And we begin to tell the story of our lives through that one kind of catch-all phrase. But for the follower of Jesus, there's actually another way to tell the story. And I would say that it is a better way. It's a better story than burnout. And so if you would, um, if you would flip or tap your way on over to Genesis chapter two, it's the beginning of your Bible, so you can think page two. And I think here that in, in the wis- we, we will encounter the wisdom of Sabbath in the beginning story. For a little context, um, The book of Genesis, along with Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, this is a collection of, of, called the Torah, and it is, or the teachings, and these are the foundation stories for the people of Israel. And so when the people of Israel are trying to figure out and remember who they are, they would often turn back here. And this is like, this passage in, in direct quotations or allusions is littered throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. And so if you would, um, just, just listen first to this or perhaps follow along. Genesis 2, starting in 1, going to verse 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their array, so that on the seventh day God had completed his work which he had done. He ceased on the seventh day from all his work which he had done, and God blessed the seventh day, and he sanctified it because on it he ceased from all his work which God had created by making it. I, I, I recognize that the grammar is a bit awkward, but that word order is significant that God ceased from all the work which God had created by making it. <laughs> Chew on that one for a week and you still, or maybe like you move the dial just one notch. With respect to this passage, uh, like what I encounter most often are these quote unquote relevant questions uh, around things like the days or what the, what the implications of the days lead to so it becomes a debate over evolution or creation or something like that. That's, um, those are fascinating conversations um, and I'd be glad to have them, but I think what those do is they end up hijacking the conversations around where the biblical authors want to lead us to. Because in this moment, they're trying to convey something significant about the seventh day. 
among other things for sure. But in this, as we're reading through it today, like this significance of the seventh day can be missed when you're having a conversation about, well, was it literal? Is it poetic? And, and, and you miss that God ceased and set that day apart. Just look again at verse three with me. Um, and, and God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it, or he made it holy, or he set it apart, and he sanctified it because on it he ceased from all his work, which God had created by making it. So depending on your translation, you would have read uh, that God maybe hallowed the seventh day, or he made it holy, he sanctified it, and whichever translation, whether you're ESV, NLT, NRSV, like whatever the thing, it's likely that what you read in that moment is this idea of set-apartness. And you know, as we aim to be good students and readers of the scripture because we believe that this word is living and active and it's gonna, it actually has the power to penetrate who we are as people and bring life, um, I, I wanna cultivate a little curiosity here with you and this little helpful note. Now, this may seem a little nerdy, but um, I guess I have the mic, so there you go. We're going to make some nerdy power moves. So this is a hermeneutical principle, and hermeneutics is like the art and science of interpretation. This is a hermeneutical principle called the order of first mention. Now, people will disagree on the significance of the order of first mention, but this is the first time in the scriptures that you see the word holy show up. And any time that you see a word show up for the first time, what it does is it helps to set the trajectory and significance of that word. And when you see here that, that holy is used, do you, do you notice what is holy? The, the day, the time itself. Time itself is the thing that is declared as holy. It's not a specific place. It's not a specific people. It is time itself that is holy. It is the unique thing in all of creation. God is saying the seventh day is unique. You know, it's, what's curious about this is similar to other rhythms of Jesus, like silence and solitude, we often want the payoff without the cost, we want silence without turning down the volume. We want healing without trust. Uh, we, and in the case of Sabbath, we want holy rest without ceasing. But I want you to notice something key here, and this comes right out of the passage. There is no rest unless we cease. Look at verse 2. And I read intentionally from this Old Testament scholar named Andrew Sheed in his translation because I think he helps us to see what the Creator God is doing when he ceases. Again, if you're reading in the NIV or NRSV or ESV, any modern English translation, it's likely that in verse two, you read that God rested on the seventh day. And that's a good and appropriate translation. And yet what it does is we immediately then put onto that word all of our understanding of rest. And yet that idea, this is the Shabbat where we get Sabbath from, the Shabbat is to cease because there is no rest unless we cease. And just a, a quick reflection here. I'm just going to chase this rabbit a little bit. There are, are two main Hebrew words, which is the, the language the Old Testament was originally written in. There are two main Hebrew words for rest in the Bible. And the first is Shabbat, which is what you see in verse, is what you see in verse two. And it's where we get our English word Sabbath. And for Sabbath, uh, it's helpful to think of an hourly job where you clock in and you clock out. 
So as you, you clock out from your shift, and when you clock out, your work has ceased, and your work will not start again until you clock in. So the other main Hebrew word for rest is nuach. Can you say that with me? Nuach? Nuach. Yeah, it's like you're clearing your throat there at the end. Nuach. So just a few verses later, scan down there to Genesis 2.15. This is what we read. And the Lord God, or Yahweh God, took humanity, took man, and put, nuoked him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. See, this type of rest, the, the nuoking, this type of rest or settling or dwelling, it's not the same as clocking in and clocking out. It's not the same as ceasing. This type of rest is about this restful presence. It's this, uh, I was trying to think of illustrations, and so I just, this is like a cliche dad in middle America kind of a moment, but I don't really care for lawn work. I would rather live in a condo where they do it for you, um, but there's a strong case that Jess makes for playing outside. And so we, we have a small yard, and the, the front yard has this like epic hill that apparently you're supposed to be able to push a mower up. And, um, you know, the, I'll, I'll go in like two-week intervals and mow the lawn, and I'll do the edging, and I'll do all these things, and at the end of it, you know, I'll have a shower and do all this, and we'll go out, and I'll just kind of have this moment of like, <sighs> surveying my creation. And that's like, there's a resonance there, as silly as that is, and forgive how cliche that may be, but it's this, maybe you could resonate on this level. You complete a project, you've been laboring over it, and finally it's there. And you don't even care what the grade is, or even if it's being submitted, you're just like, I am done. And you look at it, and your hard work is there, and you're like, yes. This is, is kind of the idea. It's not clocking in or clocking out, it's this restful presence. Except the, the work that God is doing, this is, this is the type of work God has done in creation, except for it's on this cosmic scale. And, and after six days of constructing what this, if you want to read a really great Bible nerd named John Walton, Dr. John Walton talks about the, like the lost world of Genesis 1. Um, really, it's really fantastic and not super dense. So John Walton, he'll talk about like the, the constructing of creation as God building a cosmic temple. It's where he will then reign and rule in all of creation and humanity will be the ones who push out the bounds of flourishing in the name of God. And how does it start? Sixth day, very good. Then what do we get? He ceased. And then what we see immediately thereafter in Genesis 2.15 is that he knew walked humanity in the garden. Just think, think of the implications of this. Like God rests humanity. He settles them. He new walks them in the garden of Eden, which you could like translate as the garden of delight so that they may work from a place of rest. See, humanity, male and female alike, they're to push the bounds of Eden out into all the world to display the loving care of God's rest. Just consider the implications that that has on our own story. Like, do you often feel like you need to rest from your work or do you work from your rest? I would love it if it was the latter, but so often it's the former. I need to like lay my head down after a hard season. And as best I can tell, Shabbat and Nuach, ceasing and rest, they're meant to work together because there is no rest unless we cease. And ceasing is where work truly begins, for we were made to work from that place of rest. 
See, the wisdom of Sabbath, it is established in creation. And maybe you've like heard teachings on Sabbath and it's felt legalistic or dogmatic. That's not the flavor here at all. We're just appealing to the ordering of creation because that's where this wisdom flows from. It flows from that foundation story. You actually see it in the wilderness with the people of Israel, the family through whom God desires to restore rest to all of the world. They're told that the seventh day is to be a, like a Sabbath feast to the Lord. Then in Exodus 20, you're gonna get this account. You might know it as like the 10 commandments or the 10 words. In Exodus 20, verses eight through 11, we actually hear this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor. Now just pause right there really quick. Um, six days you shall labor. Like, this is actually an invitation to work and to work well. Do all of your work, but on the seventh day, that the seventh day is a Sabbath, a ceasing to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, and then, and then check out this, like, this is kind of a like punk rock, stick it to the man kind of a vibe here that you're finding in Exodus 20. You shall not do any work, okay? You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Sojourners would be like refugees. So essentially you're saying every, every single space, every, and if there's a cast, every single element in that, in that community is to cease so that all of them might encounter the mercy of Yahweh. Verse 11, for six days, and this is the rationale, for six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them and rested. He ceased on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the seventh day and made it, declared it to be set apart, made it holy. See, the basis of Moses' appeal is the wisdom of Sabbath and creation. So when God gives these words, he's saying that it's rooted, it's rooted in the restfulness for all people and creatures in the land itself. And you too are to participate in that rest. It's like Sabbath is just waiting there. It's not going anywhere. We're the ones who go past it. And I'm convinced that if you come to the Bible with curiosity in hand and honesty and you dismiss, dismiss Sabbath, that you're dismissing the wisdom of it. I know that most of us don't come from like a rich tradition where we grew up practicing the Sabbath. And, um, you know, when I first started following Jesus, I got plugged into a church and, you know, there for a couple of years. And I, I, in reflecting, I was like, I honestly, I probably never even heard the word. Or if I did, it didn't register as anything significant. I had no idea. Like I knew about the Lord's day. I knew about the, because that's when you, you wear a different type of clothing and you do some stuff. Like I knew about the Lord's day, but I didn't know about Sabbath. And that's not to, to shame or discredit that. It's just to say that it seems as though we've lost the plot line of the wisdom of Sabbath. And hopefully we can today kind of ignite this a little bit with curiosity. And you see, I, I began to, to taste this curiosity, like I don't know, taste the fruit of this curiosity as we spent well over a year in the gospel according to Mark. And what I noticed with Jesus' life, at least as Mark displays, and I think the rest of the Gospels do the same thing, is Jesus often gets into trouble on the Sabbath. Like we see a lot of these, these episodes in the narratives like spur up conflict on the Sabbath. And so if you will, just to, to get us back into Mark, because I know you just want to go through it again. Uh, turn with me, if you will, to, to Mark chapter 2. 
we're going to be just uh, going through as we uh, kind of conclude with an invitation to rest, uh, Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. One Sabbath, verse 23, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they picked up some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? So just a quick note on the Pharisees is um, they had a reverence for the law. Jesus would often get into conflicts with them, not because they were disgruntled religious folks who were a bit uppity and needed to get a little loose. No, they had a deep reverence for the law. And they thought that, that God's restoration would come through a faithful observance of the law. And so they have a genuine contest to bring to Jesus. But what we see here um, is... is that Jesus disagrees. And I think Jesus disagrees because there's actually no law against snacking on the Sabbath. We just read that command in Exodus 20. You're to cease from your work. It's an act of mercy and justice to the community around you, your livestock, even to the ground. But the challenge is that there's some ambiguity. Well, what is work and what is not work? Jess and I, we've been trying on Sabbath for a couple years now, and most often it's like uncomfortable. Um, but we would disagree on what's restful. I like to exercise. I like to get nice and uh, get a good drip, is what one would say. Uh, that was me. Um, that's not Jessica's vibe. I, I also like to go into the garden. That's not her vibe. So what's restful for her? She's like, I enjoy going on a walk. And I'm like, oh, that's okay. So there's, even now, like, if you think about what, what delights your soul, it's going to differ. What the Pharisees were afraid of is that in the differences, we would profane the law, that we would actually step outside the bounds of the law. And so th this group of religious leaders, they started adding a bunch of regulations around the law, which is formally called building a fence around the law. This comes in and to be codified in the Mishnah, which adds like the, the, the Torah, the, the teaching, the law of the Old Testament has like some 613 or 611, depending on who you read, uh, laws or commandments. And they add like a thousand more, like 1,500 more laws in the Mishnah. They set up this fence around the, the law so that people would never transgress it. And we've seen this. You, you go to a national monument and you say, this thing is special, and so there's a, there's a fence, 10, 15, 20, 50 feet off so that nobody touches it. I think about my little garden. I have a little chicken wire fence around there so that bunnies and toddlers stay out. So I set up a fence around this thing that I want to guard and protect. Suffice it to say, Jesus is pro-Torah, and he's anti-Mishnah. He's certainly suspicious of it. He says, no, no, like you're missing it. We actually see this in verse 25. Go there with me. Jesus answered, have you never read what, this is funny, by the way, Jesus is asking Bible scholars if they've read their Bible. Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. He also gave some of, to his companions. And then he said to them, and, and check this out in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So in this strange callback story to David, who's like a great king of Israel, the one from whom God would restore the line, it would never fade, Jesus appeals to the heart of the law. 
See, the Sabbath, and we see it in this line in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. There's a pastor out west named John Mark Comer, and I find his, his work around this stuff really helpful. He wrote a book called Garden City, um, and, and he argues this, and I would agree with his argument, that we, we actually need the, the second part of verse 27 less and the first part of verse 27 more, namely that Sabbath was made for humanity. It, it's actually the wisdom of Sabbath that we get to, not that we have to, but that we get to practice. It's the ceasing that leads to rest. The Sabbath is for us. It is for our good. It is on offer if you want it. And because Jesus then is Lord of the Sabbath, we can trust him when he says things like this. This is Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30. And I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this. So if indeed you are tired, give your ear to this. Are you tired worn out, burned out on religion. Come to me, Jesus says. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. And I just wonder if he is looking back to Genesis 2 and the rest that God has on offer for his people. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I will not lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And when you hear that, does that sound oppressive? No. Does that sound burdensome? No. But it, it may sound like some effort. See, Sabbath, I am learning and experiencing slowly, but God willing, surely, has the potential to transform our lives. But also, I think it does so by upending our lives a little bit. Because it's more than just a day off where you get all the work done that you've not gotten done the rest of the week. <laughs> it is a day devoted to Yahweh, your God. It's a day where it's like this threshold, this liminal space between what was and what is. It's where you place yourself into the loving care of God, where you actually live with your life. You know, have you ever said Jesus is Lord? Maybe you've sung it. Or just think about the songs that we were singing. The Sabbath is where we get to do those things with our life, where we relinquish the illusion of control and trust that God indeed will provide for us and that things will be okay. The world will go on without us, which is hard to believe. See, for me and Jess, again, we've been trying this thing on for a bit, but this like literal 24-hour period where we place ourselves into God's care, it is uncomfortable. And there's also freedom to be had here. And I think at least for us, because we don't come from a rich tradition of practicing the Sabbath, it feels like super awkward. I don't like wearing suits, and so Sabbath feels like a suit for me. But I also, I also know that there's a purpose for a suit. There's an occasion for a suit. There's a type of dress. The Sabbath is like a dress for our life where we get to show up to God. And then it's like we get there and he goes, oh no, you, it's, you're wearing a different, I, I'm asking you to wear robes. There's one guy who talks about the Sabbath and he's like, if you don't own a bathrobe, go and invest. <laughs> get, get like the French terry cloth, like make it lush. 
that's like the type of where that God is inviting us into. And so I, I just want to like offer us some practical stuff here. <laughs> like I, I imagine that, uh, that you may be thinking, okay, this sounds cool. Or maybe you're thinking, I'm never going to do this. Um, I, I don't care. I think it's for your good. I think Sabbath is actually for you. But you get to choose. And then we get to like discover this stuff together. And so just uh, four simple movements of Sabbath. If you're a note taker, this is a good opportunity. Maybe take out your phone. <laughs> the first little thing is we just heed what a Sabbath is. We cease. So we cease from all the work that we get paid to do and the work we don't get paid to do. And this is where there's ambiguity. You actually get to choose this thing. And then this is a hard part, and I think this takes time. You cease from thinking about working. There's a significant amount of data that talks about when you start to think about work, it actually releases like stress in your body. It's the same that you feel when you are working. Scary, I know. But you cease from thinking about work. And to the best that you can, you place yourself in a loving care of God. The, the, the next thing that you would do is you rest. Because that is the thing. There is no rest unless you cease. And so this is holistic. You rest physically. Like Sabbaths, I've learned, are just about naps. It's a day for napping. And so you sleep a lot. It's, it's mental and emotional rest. You, you think of the things that actually give delight to your soul. And then do those things. And it's where we get to cease from the striving and then just be in the loving presence of God. This is through the act of abiding. This is where silence and solitude and prayer come in. And we actually get to receive from God in that place. And this might be surprising to you, but Sabbath is, is really about delight. So from that place of restful abiding, you actually get to delight in God. That's where the bathrobe comes in. Maybe not so much delight for your neighbors, but for you, it is like, that's, that's a game changer. And so just seriously, ask this question for you. If there's anything else, like what would make my soul erupt with joy? Somebody says, oh, what'd you learn at church? I was just considering what would make my soul erupt with joy. What makes your soul erupt with joy? Like, and then just have this conversation and ask God about these things. Perhaps it's just food. Like we pretty much just try and graze our way through the Sabbath. Practically, uh, Friday nights are when we start ours, kind of around sundown. And if you are into rituals, you could um, get really Jewish with it, with it and light a couple of candles and you could do this Kaddush. There's tons of stuff on the internets for this. You light one candle to remember, one candle to observe, and there's a blessing set over. You pour a glass of wine or grape juice and you just, you sit with your community and you have a feast and then you go to bed early and you sleep in and you drink like too much coffee and then you're just there and you delight yourself. You play games, you go outside and in the midst of this you ascribe worth to God. So altogether Sabbath is actually how we say Jesus is Lord with our life. Or as one pastor put it as we close, Sabbath is taking a day a week to remind myself that I did not make the world and that it will continue to exist without my efforts. Sabbath is a day when my work is done, even if it isn't. Sabbath is a day when my job is to enjoy, period. Sabbath is a day when I am fully available to myself and those I love most. Sabbath is a day when I remember that when God made the world, he saw it was good. Sabbath is a day when I produce nothing. It's a day when at the end of it I said, I didn't do anything today. And I don't add, and I feel so guilty. 
And lastly, Sabbath is a day when my phone is turned off, I don't check my email, and you can't get a hold of me. It's like a little oasis in our life. This is this place, and this like, kind of picture came to my mind as I was just thinking about our time today, is like if you're caught in the rapids, where you can imagine yourself being caught in the rapids of a river, and all of a sudden, as the river's just taking you wherever it wants to go, your feet hit ground, and not the slippery moss-covered rocks, but it hits like a sandbar, and you're jolted, and then above you, like almost out of nowhere, there is a branch extended over you that you can hold onto. Is the sandbar the shore you long for? No. But the sandbar is a way for you to recover like your, yourself in the midst of the rapids. It's a place to cease from the currents and rest. And it helps you look forward to the moment you will get to the shore. It actually strengthens you to go forward. And so I want us, in this next moment, we're going to turn to the bread and the cup. And this, this too, if you, would, if you would stand with me, um, you know, when we think about how to live from the place of belonging and love that God has on offer for us, this is, this is a practical way we get to do this every week. We, we get to take the bread, this little tiny wafer, <laughs> We get to take in the juice. The, the, we get to take in the body and blood of Jesus. And in this act, like something we do with our body, this is another way that we say Jesus is Lord. And just think about like, I don't know, these little plastic caps. If you're at home, you may not be experiencing this, but these little plastic caps that the, that the elements are held in, they can be kind of a pain in the butt to get open. <laughs> And as we get to it, though, this is like, it's like a, a little metaphor in your hand of just like, it's a place where we get to say, we get to take it into our body and say this, Jesus' body that was broken is actually my life. His body was broken in the place of my own so that I can be restored. His blood was poured out as a forgiveness of sins so that I can be restored. We come to it and we remember it. The Sabbath is just the same. It is there on offer. So if you would, if you would take the body broken for you and remember, take the blood poured out for you and remember that Jesus is Lord, that he is the one who though he knew no sin became sin so that we may become sons and daughters so that we could rest in the righteousness of God. Right standing, right relationship, intimacy, and I would just invite you over the course of these, as we like respond and we continue in worship through song, I would just invite you, ask that question, what delights my soul? And I just, I, I told Christy this, I think that the spirit is like, maybe this language is, it sounds odd to you, I, I, I understand that it can. I think the spirit is actually inviting some of us journey with him into the depths of those places that we've closed the door that we've said no you actually can't go there and that as you ask this question of what would delight my soul it's it's like a way of you opening up that door because he's stand he's standing there knocking you just have to open it and so i would invite you because it's all invitation
to come to Him. If you feel weary or you feel burdened, to come to Him because rest, the rest of the living God is on offer for you today. And then we can remind ourselves of it weekly by entering in, entering into this cathedral in time that God has set apart as holy. So let us, church, let us remember Jesus. Let us exalt His name. Yeah, let's worship.